Welcome to New England Lacrosse Journal's Chasing the Gold podcast, your destination for all things lacrosse. I'm your host, Kyle Devitt. Alongside me, Mr. Jack Piatelli. We're in the studio. We're doing a podcast. Let's go. Love having you back. A lot of fun seeing that handsome face. <laughs> you ready for the holidays? Well, actually, the holidays are over. How was your? How are your holidays? Good? Yeah. <laughs> good. <laughs> oh my god Wait, ladies and gentlemen welcome jack to the concept of time uh, <laughs> just talking about how how looking forward he was to going to italy uh before but uh, yeah i'm sure they're gonna be great i'm gonna be in florida with my family so hopefully i make it back if not you'll you'll know before this airs very good i got some bad news for you we gotta we have unfortunately for you we have our guest is another springfield college grad uh Head coach, St. Leo, Brad Jurgelson. Coach, thanks for joining us today. Absolutely, guys. Good to see you. You, you always, how many did you have this week? You, we, we do the podcast a couple times in a row. How many, how many Springfield guys have we had on the last month? I think I lost count. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, coach, yeah, he's the, the head coach of St. Leo, Brad Jurgelson. Uh, I, I know him from, uh, being a head coach at Wheaton for a very long time, uh, back when it was the Pilgrim League. Which I believe was the Pilgrim League when you were playing. Yes, it was Pilgrim League. Now the the new Mac with Emerson Clark. I don't know if you heard of it, Clark University, my alma mater, Springfield, of course, Wheaton, uh, host of us who was Coast Guard as well. Coach, how's it going? It's going great. It's going great, guys. Now I know you've been at St. Leo for 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 a minute here. Made an appearance uh, in the title game uh, several years ago against Merrimack. Uh, how how different? Is coaching and, and playing, because you played in the program league as well, uh, in that kind of New England bubble there in Central Mass, coming all the way down to Florida and kind of creating this program into one of the premier programs in Florida? Sure. I, I think it was one of the most exciting parts of the opportunity, trying to fix an inherited culture versus starting with a blank slate. I've done both. I know I will never inherit somebody else's culture ever again. Uh, if I ever coach someplace other than St. Leo, it will be a startup. I'll tell you, the, the, our year one team that went three and nine was probably some of the most fun I've ever had uh, coaching. But yeah, it was a leap leaving that sort of New England bubble. I had never lived really outside New England and deciding to, to pick up and, and move about as far south as you could go, the, it, was, it was a leap for sure. Now, you had a great career at Springfield College. I know you're an All-American. You were on the national championship team. I was at both those games. Lost one year to, I think, New York Tech. And I forget, or did you beat New York Tech in the championship? Either way, you were in the championship back-to-back years. Did you go to Springfield um, knowing that you wanted to coach after you um, finished up at Springfield? Uh, I would say somewhat. Uh, I wanted to be a, a phys ed teacher and coach high school football uh, when I was 18. That was what I thought I was doing. Played football my freshman year, like a lot of guys do at Springfield. Right. Uh, and kind of, I had talked to Coach Bugby when I was a senior in high school and, and knew lacrosse was an option. Kind of went out after football season and really just, I, I enjoyed it more. I was an underweight pass catching tight end playing football at a school that throws the ball twice a year. Right. Uh, so football, twice, football, twice was, a year. <laughs> <laughs> That's football wasn't a great fit for me yeah. from a, from a schematic standpoint in Springfield. I, I chose to go there because of the phys ed piece. It's what I wanted to do. 
And then like a lot of kids, I learned enough about being a phys ed teacher uh, or whatever they're studying that I, I learned enough to know that I didn't want to do it. After my second student teaching rotation, it became pretty clear to me that I liked the coaching piece a lot more than I liked the physical education piece. So, and, and you got an example like Keith Bugby at Springfield, that's the guy we all wanted to be when we grew up. So it made that transition really easy. And coach obviously guided you through that transition period. And, and uh, when you graduated, where did you start off? Was it at Wheaton College that you started off first? No, well, my, my first stop was Northwest Catholic High School in West Hartford, Connecticut. Not as a coach. I was Macbeth to 11th graders. Did that for about three months. And then my first stop, I was an assistant at Amherst College for two seasons. And then, then on to Wheaton before coming down here. What's the transition been like for you being a New England guy? You come down to Florida. I imagine lacrosse is much different 20 years ago at the youth and the high school levels compared to where it is today. Talk a little bit about where the lacrosse was when you first went down to Florida and where it is today. Sure. My, so I got the job mid-year. I got down here about the end of January uh, and had to have a team on the field by September. So I had, I had to make a schedule uh, and I had to find bodies. So not a lot uh, of reason to stay put on campus other than visits. So I remember I went out, I drove out to a, a high school lacrosse game in Orlando and after about seven minutes, kind of went, oh, no, what did I do to myself? I, I can't build a college lacrosse team with this. And, and it's changed drastically. Obviously, there's, there's hotbeds in Florida that are producing talent that are going all over the country and being successful at, at, at all levels. That simply wasn't the case. It was basically uh, one or two schools uh, early on down here that had talent. And, and the interesting thing for, that I had to learn is culturally down here in Florida, most high school kids don't really understand small private education. The brass ring for 99% of the kids that graduate high school in Florida is one of the big state schools. Uh, that, that's what they want. That's what they're, it, it's what the culture is down here uh, in terms of attitudes towards higher education. So luckily for us, small private Catholic school speaks to kids on Long Island, speaks to kids in New England, speaks to kids in upstate New York, speaks to some of the better lacrosse playing school high schools in the Midwest. So we had a product that would make a kid come down from New England, that would make a kid come down from Long Island. So it made the build out a little bit quicker. I still say it's harder for me to recruit Florida kids often than it is for me to recruit a kid from Long Island or, or, or New England. And why is that? Because the Florida kids want to go, go to East and play? There's a couple things. So the Florida kids that are, that are talented enough to be somebody who would help us out feel like they have to go north to prove themselves. Right. Uh, I think there's a lot of talented kids in Florida that would rather play MCLA because right. they'd rather go to UF. They'd rather go to FSU. That's sort of the culture down here. Right. Um, you know, my my son that's at St. Joe's, his entire gigantic graduating class of, I think it was 640 kids. I think he was the only one that left the state. Uh, there might've yeah. been two or three other kids in the entire class that left the state of Florida to go to school. So in for us, again, a New England kid gets a small private school. I think we're affordable on that scale as well. 
I think a lot of times mom and dad look at us and go, gosh, we were paying more to send them to high school. This is a great deal. Sign me up. And that just doesn't happen down here. So I think what we are as an institution is just, it's more digestible for a New England kid or a New York kid or a Midwestern kid. Yeah, I, I, that is totally true, by the way. my my One of my sisters lives in Orlando and her son is 16 and he's only talking about Florida schools to me. And I'm just like, why, why are you only talking about that? He's like, well, where else would I go? I'm like, it's an entire United States. Like yeah. you can come up here. Yeah. Like you have more family up here. You're down there. Like, come on up. I think that's kind of like a thing you have to break almost. And one of the things that has been a part of that is all these schools in Florida that are division two schools expanding to have men's lacrosse programs. You were St. Leo was kind of one of the first teams to do that. And now you have a whole conference to yourself. Uh, Rollins did a similar timeline, I believe. Can you talk about that experience? And now there's enough teams in Florida to have your own conference division two. Yeah. So uh, when I took the St. Leo job, we were, we were the first NCA lacrosse program guys or girls in the state of Florida, our nearest opponent, my first season, was limestone in Gaffney, South Carolina. That was that was the short hop. Um, so, so coach, I'm going to turn it up. So, Tampa was established after St. Leo. Yes. Wow. Yep. Yep. We were around for about three years. Then Rollins jumped on. Um, shortly thereafter, Florida Southern uh, jumped on, and then I want to say Tampa was next, followed quickly by Florida Tech, and then Embry Riddle and Palm Beach Atlantic and Lynn were all sort of a cluster time-wise. And then Flagler, who's not in our conference, oddly enough, but they've, they're the latest add at the Division II level. So early on here, we, we, we <laughs> had some traveling to do. I think it was great early on with people coming to us on spring break. That gets harder when you get better. Uh, nobody wants to spend $20,000 to come down and lose a game. So as, as we got to be a tougher matchup, those spring breakers coming down from your neck of the woods dried up uh, a little bit, much like the Pilgrim League. We, we had a, a, a lacrosse-only league that I was able to cobble together that was St. Leo, Rollins, uh, eventually Florida Southern and Tampa, and the schools from the SAC that they didn't have enough for a conference yet. So Catawba, Wingate, Lenore Rhine. I think at the time for a little bit, Presbyterian was in before they made the Division One jump and, and dropped the program. But we sort of cobbled together a scheduling alliance and called it a conference between some of the schools in the Carolinas and some of the schools in, in Florida that, that made it a little bit more doable in terms of having guaranteed home games every year. St. St. Leo, small Catholic private school in Florida, what do you offer to the athletes that attract them to come to get an education at St. Leo's? Sure. It is your classic small private. We're, we're talking about maximum class size of 25. The average class size is 17. Um, so it provides that. We have a lot of majors that we really lean into. We do very well with our criminal justice, our cybersecurity, our computer science. Um, it are all very big majors for us, as well as Sport business being another side that's a really big one for us. Our biomedical pre-med has really taken off as well. So we've got some some majors that guys want to study. They can do it in that hands-on environment that a lot of kids really, really want. 
and we do it at a pretty affordable rate comparatively a lot of schools, particularly schools in the Northeast. So I, I think that combo, I think we get a lot of kids. It's funny, one of the things I've noticed in recruiting, we do really well in New York. We do really well in New England. We don't do as well in Baltimore. And in digging in, trying to figure out why. Florida kids, New England kids, I mean, New York kids and New England kids vacation in Florida. Uh, they've all got a grandma, an aunt, a vacation condo in Clearwater. Uh, Baltimore kids vacation on the Eastern Shore or if they're really going nuts, they're on the Outer Banks, right? They're not familiar with Florida. It, it, they're a stranger in a strange land. I can't tell you how many of my guys from the Northeast have a grandma in Orlando or an aunt in Boca or a place they've gone with their family in Fort Myers every year. So we get a lot of kids who are familiar with that. We also get a lot of second generation you know, a lot of our criminal justice guys, their dad's a cop who's put in his 20 years and he's looking to buy a retirement home right, in, right. in Florida. So it kind of it kind of works with with that. And, and I think the other thing that is always really interesting, we get a lot of kids who come down to visit and they're looking at us and going to go to Florida Southern and going to go to Tampa. And it, about the only thing the teams in our conference have in common uh, is geography. Uh, everything else, size is often different, what they specialize in, where they're located. Um, I always tell kids when they come down to visit and they're going to go to Tampa while they're down here, you're going to get on the airplane liking one of us. If you get right. on the airplane, not sure which one you like, you really got to figure it out, kid, because we are very different institutions. It's a very different vibe at both places. And I'm not even saying one is better than the other. It's just right. one's going to fit for you and one's not. Right. Um, it, it, and you really shouldn't get on the airplane too confused if differentiating the two. One, one thing all those schools do have is pools. Yeah. <laughs> I'll, all, I'll tell you this. All the schools have a pool. Uh, everybody from New England, uh, it's open the whole year. Yeah, I know. true. It, and it's funny you say that because I was just going to say, like, I'm going to – Orlando for the holidays and my parents have a condo in Lake Nona. So it, it's totally true. The stereotypes are true. I will, I will tell you all the stereotypes yeah. are true. And the, the thing that works, I think in your favor is that, and I, I'm going to give another reason why the Baltimore people don't want to go. They don't know what real winter's like. They don't, they don't know what, they don't know what the, the true dark malaise of living in New England is like and the true and the true suffering. And you give them a respite for four years. And then if they come back, they're like, shouldn't have left. It's one of those things. I think it's a little switch in your brain. Just, just clicks a little bit. You talk about recruiting in, in a lot of different places that, that aren't Florida. Cause you had to, what was that meeting like with your, with your AD where you're like, I can't, I, I need to leave and go to all these very different places, very far away from here to get the players that I need to build this program. How was, how was that? Cause I even know in new England when I was coaching, that was a, that was a battle. Yeah, I think they they understood as an institution. So the president at St. Leo at the time that we started the program came to us from the Finger Lakes region. He was the president at Huca College before taking the St. Leo job. My athletic director was a Fitchburg State alum. So they went into starting lacrosse with open eyes in terms of you know what it meant in terms of recruiting kids from outside the region. And again, I, I about my recruiting being sort of uh, a challenge in the state of Florida versus the Northeast. It's the same for our admissions people. Um, 50% of our student body is from outside the state of Florida. Um, so 
recruiting outside of Florida's borders was not a mind blowing thing um, for them. It was pretty standard operating procedure. And I always tell kids too, uh, in-state, out-of-state means a little different in some different things in Florida than it does in New England, right? You can be a seven hour drive away from home and still be an in-state student at St. Leo. We have two time zones in Florida. I grew up in Connecticut, seven hours got me to DC, right? The Florida, I, I go to visit my brother in Atlanta. It takes me three hours just to get to the border. It's a big, big place. So when you talk about in-state, out-of-state, it almost means something different in a state this size. Coach, how many players do you bring in normally every year? Obviously, it's based on your needs in terms of recruits. All right, so now we're into the 25s. You're recruiting 25s along with, are you still recruiting 24s? Uh, We always leave some spots. There's always that one or two talented kids that, the music stops and they don't have a chair. And now they're restarting their pro their process in December. Uh, the phone stopped ringing. They were number two on a lot of guys lists and all the number one said yes. So that happens. And we, as a division two coach, I feel like we should be getting division one guys who aren't there for one reason or another. Uh, that That's really what we want. So we do recruit a little bit later. We're pretty much wrapped up with, the the 24s and moving on to 25s and we have to leave spots in the portal if you're not in that game you're getting blown past Uh, you can discuss whether you like it or not whether you think it's a good idea or not you can try to fight it but then you're going to be lining up against four Syracuse transfers uh, in the spring so you got to you got to get in the game it's that simple obviously again it's based on needs and what you're looking for but how many players you get out of the portal or you look um, how does that affect your team it's it's almost it's an opportunity thing right we we don't dictate who's in there so i i think that's a hard one to put a number on right. i know when when recruits ask me about recruiting class size i always direct them to roster size because that's really the important number Right. right. That's really what a recruit wants to know is, sure. am I going to be wearing number 72 and you're not going to know my name uh, right. or am I going to have a chance to grow and get on the field eventually? Um, so there's, there's years we have massive classes. There's years we have much smaller classes and it really is reflective of getting us to the roster number we want to be at, which is usually just about 50. Yeah. The, uh, you're one of the few schools and I know this cause I just did D2 and D3 all Americans that has their 24 roster up. Thank you, by the way, <laughs> appreciate that. And none of your freshmen are from Florida. So that's, it's, it's an interesting, I know that's not going to happen every year. What was, what did you notice that before I said that, or did you kind of like just put together the best class that you could and kind of go forward with your freshman guys? Yeah, I mean, I, we don't care where they're from. Uh, if they're good, they're good. Uh, that that part doesn't bug me. I think uh, there's a couple of things. One, my 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 right hand man, my first assistant, Chad Marino, is a Long Island guy. Played at Mount Sinai. His dad's in the Hall of Fame at Hofstra. He just goes home for the summer and posts up at his parents' house and. Anything that he can drive to, that's what he does instead of flying back and forth. So there's a little bit of you get what you recruit. Um, You know, it certainly wasn't a targeted, hey, let's stay away from Florida. We have a couple of Florida kids in our 24 group. So it's not a, hey, we're running away from those guys. It's just the way last year worked out was no Florida kids in it. But again, a roster of 50 guys, 
I think we might have 10 Florida guys on the roster. That question went a lot better with you than it went when I asked a coach who was no longer coaching at a place why he didn't have more in-state kids. So thank you. Appreciate <laughs> <it>. <laughs> Do you remember that? Yeah. Yeah. It was a good time. Coach, in, in terms of exposure for the university, the 2018 title game for D2, how much do you think that helped put your program on the map and also St. Leo in general, because that was held at Gillette. That was up here. How much, how many, if you could estimate, just, just give me a percentage. How many kids probably saw that game and knew about St. Leo from that game that are now on your team? Uh, I know there's at least a half dozen and talk about the power of advertising. There's a half dozen on our women's team. Um, So uh, yeah, I I think getting your name and your logo splashed across an NFL stadium um, for three straight days at basically what is lacrosse's Woodstock. Yeah. There's, there's, uh, and I know my, my wife actually works at St. Leo in in the marketing side of the house. uh, And I know they have a number on what that, what that value is. Uh, I don't know it, but it's a pretty big number in terms of exposure, uh, in terms of uh, people particularly going to a region that isn't regional, right? There's, there were, gosh, probably thousands of people that weekend who had never heard of us that had never been exposed to St. Leo and hop on Google on their phone when they're watching the D1 semis because they're trying to figure out who are these guys playing tomorrow. The, the, that amount of exposure uh, is pretty hard to deny. Yeah, I remember as I covered that game, and I only knew what it was because I knew who you were because you were at Wheaton. So I, I remembered, and I was talking to people from IL and I'm meeting people, and I was they're like, "What do you know about this school?" And I was like, "Well, like Jordan was at Wheaton forever. Like, like I I know who he is. I know like what the team's gonna be like." And they were kind of just like, "How did this team get here?" And one of the things I tried to explain to a lot of them because this is the thing about lacrosse that's crazy. It's small. But you have these people still that are super into D1 and they only know D1 and they know everything about the B. They know stats, they know coaches, they know players, they know commits. And then you're like, well, D2 games, D3 games this weekend, are you going to go to those? They're like, oh, I don't know anything about that. Right. And it, that always blew my mind, right? Like it always blows my mind that you're so obsessed with the sport and you don't know anything about two of the bigger pieces of the entire puzzle. Right. That's kind of how I look at it. And just explaining what D2 was and how the playoff system worked, that's a headache in and of itself, right? I mean, even now, I mean, you're laughing because, you know, because, right, like, I guess my next question is, like, how how does that kind of equate to how you coach and, and how you're setting up a program when you know that everything is very, it's biased, man, it's very north and south and everything is bifurcated. Is that tougher for you? Is that make it easier because you know what you have to do because to get in the playoff, because you're basically elected. There's no, there was conference champions all over. There was undefeated teams. That didn't go to the D2 playoffs last year. It's crazy, right? Yeah. And there's a significant chance that changes at the D2 level relatively quickly. So hopefully it does. Yeah. No, I, I used to tell my colleagues that we're like college football. That's, that's how we have to schedule. That's how we have to look at wins and losses I remember one year relatively early on at St. Leo, probably, I want to say 2011, 2010 in that range, we were really good. And we lost to Limestone at home by a goal. 
And I knew when that game was over, we weren't going. Yeah. It was done. Losing that one game, we were we were cooked in a one goal game, right? So it's it's gotten better with the tournament expansion. You got a little bit more breathing room. Scheduling is an underrated skill for a head coach. It is critical uh, right. to schedule correctly and to give yourself a chance and to give yourself know when and where to pick your fights and where and when you need to get a team that you're going to beat. It, it's one of the more sort of behind the curtains things that we have to do uh, is put that together. It's really interesting that you have to plan that way and, and decide on you want to win some games, but you don't want to win all the games if you're playing against weak competition, because that's not going to do you any good. But if you only lose one game because you're playing really good competition, that doesn't help either. So it's like you got to find the middle ground. Yep. No, I did. And that's, a lot of the Division Two tournament is based on RPI and performance indicator, right? Which is a formula we don't really have access to. Right. A formula that's a lot of it's out of our hands, right? The year in 2018 that we went to, to the national championship, two wins that on paper people probably weren't crazy about turned out to be great wins for us because those teams went off and had a great year. Right? right. So we, we, we beat Alabama Huntsville who went off and won 13 games that year. We beat Lincoln Memorial. They won 13 games that year. In February, when we won those games, people probably weren't saying those were sexy wins. And right. then as the season played out, those turned out to be tremendous wins. So it's, it's really hard because a lot of it, even when you put together a good schedule, if the wrong team has a bad year, it can hurt you. Does the number of games you play affect whether you go or not? Like, is there a, you see some division two and three programs have more games during the regular season than division one programs. I know there's different philosophy with division one because they want to pretty much have one game a week. They very rarely have a game during midweek, but is, is that a factor too? the number of games you play during the season? Uh, technically, no, not by the letter of the law. Uh, and I can say this as a guy that was on the national committee for a number of years and, and had to pick uh, when we weren't involved. As long as you play the Division Two minimum games to be tournament eligible, it should not help or hurt uh, how many you play. Um, but now you're talking, again, if you play 12 games and it's all high-level competition and you win them all, you're going to go. Right. If you play 16 games and you're playing St. Mary's School for the Blind four times, it's not going to help you. So a lot of it is based on strength of schedule, what those people do, what the RPI numbers say. So it, it's not an exact science by any stretch. Yeah, and your team, based on your talent, is going to be different every year. So you you can't go on the previous season. You really don't know what's coming the fall season to some degree, Right. So to your point, you beat two teams early in the season, then they went on to have great seasons, so that helped you. But going yep. into that season, you probably didn't know that. Nope. Yeah, and, you know, that's why the NE10 always was producing these teams because, like, they, they would beat each other up and their RPIs kept going up, and that's kind of how the Merrimack thing happened, right? Like, they started – they tilted the scale when they were in D2, right? They beat the teams they needed to beat – to get consideration to be elected to the playoff. And I, I think I, I had a 
I had a tweet that kind of went viral last year, right when they announced the the field for D two, and I was just like, you know, it's just a guy holding up a sign that says like D two needs an actual playoff field. If you win your <laughs> conference in D two, you should go to the NCAA tournament for a chance to win. I I, I know that people people like to kind of put D two down a little bit as. Well, you have these schools that just have it because they're a D2 school and they need to fill all their quotas or whatever. And there are a couple of schools like that. I think those schools are few and far between now. And my my best example for that of, of a school that invests and gets a much better team is Lewis. Lewis is an aviation school that basically only competes with Embry-Riddle for players. <laughs> and I know that because I coached at Daniel Webster and we were in aviation school before they got taken over and then eventually shut down. They, those, that school was built itself off of the need for that major in the, in the marketplace. And then having, you know, it's such a, it's such a, a specific thing of like aviation. You're studying being a pilot, you're studying air traffic control, all these other majors that are very specific. They took that and kind of made an entire school out of it. And then they added lacrosse and they rose up like you guys did. At this point, I mean, I, I think they're in like they're ranked in top twenty at the end of last year, right? They they beat U Indy, which no one ever th- saw coming. It was the biggest upset in all of D two besides Frostburg beating Tampa. And I think that's the unique thing about D two. I w- I want to get more people more excited about D two because again, where we live, it's just any ten. We're talking about the any ten all the time. It is what it is. There's tons of great schools. They all battle each other. They all take each other's money. And right? it's, very, it's very good lacrosse. So it, and it's, it's great. It yeah, is. It's in, and every team in the conference is getting better every yeah. year, which makes it more interesting. There's, they get m- m- more of a following. So I, I agree with you 100%. Yeah. And I, I mean, I live a mile and a half away from SNU. Like there's so many accessible areas for D2 in New England and, and Massachusetts as well. But the expansion of the format, I'm curious as to what you think the timeline for that is. Do you think it's five years? Do you think it's 10 do you think there just needs to be more teams for it to work? I think it's sooner and the more teams, the better. But I, I know there there are discussions going on. So hopefully it's something that happens sooner rather than later. But I would foresee it happening sooner than five years in terms of expansion. I think in terms of a place like Lewis or any of these other schools, folks have to realize there's nobody on campus an enrollment director loves more than their men's lacrosse coach. Okay. Uh, It's a big roster uh, that tends to deliver smart, relatively affluent males, which are hard to come by Uh, right now. Demographically, there's just more young ladies than there are guys. Uh, There's way more college bound women than there are men. And the, the kids that are playing high school lacrosse are exactly what an enrollment guy wants so now you take a place like lewis that maybe a kid from new england has never heard of but he's interested in flying planes wow look at this look at this fit and a guy that never would have found lewis had a reason to find lewis so i think there's a a lot of us in in this in this coaching world that get nice big christmas cards from our enrollment directors for sure I actually helped a kid from New Hampshire do that because I was just talking to Chris Karen, runs the Tomahawks, right? And he's like, yeah, I got a kid looking for aviation. I was like, well, what about Lewis? He's like, what's Lewis? Because it it's, it's only been around since 2020. You erased 2020. You kind of erased 2021 in a way too. So it's really like people don't even know what the school is. And I was just like, hey, check this out. I did an article when they came out as a team for, for Inside the Cross and I like the coach a lot. 
And I was just like, made a great impression on me. I, I think the kid will like it. And the kid committed. I, I looked on my phone the next day. Kid committed. Good just have, have one call. And that's the, the greatness of, of D2 is, is there is this specific need for players that fit what you were just talking about, as well as the specific nature of some of these schools offering majors that really aren't common at the D1 or D3 level for all these schools. There, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, there aren't a ton of liberal arts colleges that are D2, right? That's not kind of how it's set up. That's not how those schools operate. And that's fine. No shade. No, that like, that's just not how they work. And I think that your point is, is well taken that you want to have a player that's a student, student athlete, who's not just there because they're getting the money to be on scholarship. They're going to graduate. Men's lacrosse players graduate at a very high level, D1, D2, and D3. And I think that's one of the great things about lacrosse is you get a great education from it. So I think that's it's a good message to put out there to listeners. Brad, does this misconception, as you well know, with parents and players, you talk about needs, financial needs, financial aid, scholarship, uh, merit money. What's the actual um, formula for your school in terms of what you can offer your scholar athletes or student athletes in terms of scholarship money, financial aid, and merit money? Sure. So we do have scholarships. We do not have the full 10.8 that's allotted. And the way that we manage that is we're in many cases allowed to stack scholarship money on top of academic merit. So the way it works at St. Leo is if a kid's GPA is high enough, we can give them both. If it's too low, then it's one or the other, which makes it a lot harder for me to stretch my scholarship budget. So it's a nice carrot at the end of the stick to make me recruit smarter guys. It means I have to spend less of our scholarship budget. I know I always tell folks when I'm talking at a high school or my prospect camp, uh, if you want a scholarship, don't go to the weight room, go to the library. Um, There are there's billions of dollars more available in academic merit than there is in athletic scholarship. It's just the way it is. So the guys on our roster that are fortunate enough to get athletic scholarship are almost exclusively guys uh, that are still getting at least half of what they're getting through academics. And we kind of, what, 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 where are you at in terms of the number of scholarships? You said you're not at 10.8. Where are you at? Uh, we're probably at about six. Six. And, and how is that determined? Is that determined by the school or the NCAA? And how is nope. that funded? Yeah, by the school. It's, it's a school's determination. And it's not really funded. It's discount, right? right. It's yeah, like right. when you go to the car dealership and they say you get $4,000 cash back. No, you don't. You just... They're they're biting into their margin to get you to to buy at what is still a palatable rate. Um, so there is now we do have the ability to fundraise for more scholarships if we want more than what the school allots. Right. Then yes, you can fundraise in some places where you're lucky enough to endow a scholarship that's actual real cash that gets paid to the institution every year to cover someone's tuition bill. But most scholarship isn't actual money. Uh, it's it's discount. So do you spread the six scholarships out among all 50 players or there aren't out of the 50, only so many get a certain percentage of the scholarship money? 
Yeah, no, it's not everybody gets a proportionate piece. It's just not the way it works. Now, we're we're fortunate, we're not fortunate, but the way it works for us is we're not a headcount sport like Division One football or basketball, where if you're a scholarship kid, you're getting a full scholarship. Um, everything's taken care of. We can take a few grand here, we can take a few grand there. So it really is very unique um, to each individual player um, based on their merit scholarship, based on do they get other scholarship money from St. Leo uh, that we're not allowed to cross over on. Um, Sometimes the the need-based aid or extra aid that our admissions office would want to give a kid uh, is far higher than what I would give them uh, in athletic scholarship. Um, so it, it really is uh, an individual thing in individual circumstances, right? There's, there's kids who need a lot because of what's going on at home. And there's kids whose parents are doing pretty darn well. And what, what we're offering sounds pretty good and, and doable. Coach, I'm taking a look here at your 2024 schedule. You're playing February 3rd against Limestone to open your yeah. season. Is we're, that we're out you just push your chips in January. Here you go. Pushing your chips in. Is that how you look at it, or am I am I reading into that? It's. I wouldn't say to push your chips in. We've tended to play them pretty early in the season. They're one of the few teams in the SAC that's been willing to come to Florida home and away. That conference has gotten so big that you can. They barely play any non-conference games in that conference. Uh, anymore. And, and when they do, they can do it against Conference Carolina schools that are a half hour down the road. So Limestone's been a very good scheduling partner for us. Um, you, you know, I think it, it's early for both of us, right? Who knows? Uh, right. Who knows what can happen? We start practice January 10th, t-shirts and shorts out on the turf. We got time to get ready, right? So we're fortunate with where we are climate-wise that, yeah, that's not a huge leap to be game ready by the first Saturday uh, in February. Boy, I tell you, Brad, I would love to go back in time <laughs> and go to St. Leo and play lacrosse and not have have to shovel that field on Springfield in Springfield, Mass. I'm sure you had to shovel that field a few times. Uh, which, oh, yes. That was, our, that was our training to go out and shovel snow, but to be outside in shorts and T-shirts January 10th, that's – I mean, that's got to be a pretty good recruiting tool for the New England players. I, sign me up. I'm ready to go. Get a good education, small school. Canadian guys, too. Got to love it. Yeah. yeah. No, I, I still still chuckle to myself walking past the palm tree outside my office door in a T-shirt and shorts when it's the dead of winter. Uh, that hasn't gotten old yet. So do you, you, you really enjoyed the move down to Florida. I mean, it's a little different, I'm sure, but... I don't know if I could live down there all year round because it just gets so hot at certain times of the year. Yeah, no, I always tell people we have, we only have two seasons in Florida. We have hot and wet and we have perfect and hot and wet runs from Memorial day to Halloween. And then the other half of the year is perfect. Right. Right. Very um, good. But yeah, I, I think moving to Florida was a, a no one's from here, right? Everybody's a transplant. Like I said, right. my boss was a Fitchburg state guy. My the guy who lived across the streets from Colorado. It, it is such a transplant heavy place to live that it wasn't a, a real giant leap. It would probably be much harder to grow up here and move to Boston. Right, right, right. That makes sense. Makes a lot of sense. Yeah. What's that assistant make? What are we talking? 
I'm just, I'm just for, for future reference. I'm just I need a retirement plan, man. I, I can't do this forever. Coach, sign me up. I'm coming down. Uh, you have a pool on campus? <laughs> yeah, we got a couple. Oh, I bet. Just last question. Just talk a little bit about your campus and the facilities. People listening, like I'm sure the facilities have come a long way over the years since you've been there as well. Yeah. The, in terms of location, we're about, depending on the time of day, half hour, 40 minutes northeast of downtown Tampa. I really like our location because it's sort of a best of both worlds. Campus itself is in a relatively rural area, but six miles down the road is every mall, restaurant, movie theater, suburbia you would ever want. So to put it in New England terms, everything, everything in Florida is run through the county. And yeah. we're in Pasco County. And Tampa proper is in Hillsborough County. Well, the property taxes in Pasco are way cheaper than Hillsborough. Gotcha. So we are the New Hampshire to your Massachusetts, Tampa okay. proper. Okay, very good. Right? So it's, it's a commuter-heavy bedroom community that all commutes in to downtown Tampa, growing like crazy. Campus itself is gorgeous on a lake. One of our pools is an infinity pool that looks out over the lake surrounded by 36 holes of really nice golf. That part is great. Our actual facility is pretty interesting. Our turf stadium is on the roof of our parking garage. So we have one of those deals where we hid 750 parking spots under the lacrosse field. We're really fortunate it's a lacrosse only facility. So we share it with the women and that's it. Yeah, from logistically practice slots, game scheduling, not having to share it with six, seven, eight other teams it really is real, a, a nice plus that it is a lacrosse only facility. And obviously we don't need a dome unless it's fall ball. We get chased off by lightning every now and then in September, but it's, it's a pretty darn nice place to have a home game in February. Fantastic. Awesome. Coach, thanks for coming on. It's great having you on. Absolutely guys. 46 minutes coach. That went very fast. Great job. So nice to catch up with you. We, we know each other over the years because we're Springfield guys, and I followed you when you played at Springfield. And But I'm glad you're having a lot of success down there in Florida. And you never know. I might come down and see you and if you need a coach. There you go. you got to uh, hire me before you hire him. No, that's no, sure. no, no, no. <laughs> Technically, I have way more college coaching experience than you. You, you both can come. And you too. Four years. I college. have 12. Okay. All right. Okay. All right. <laughs> Great Brad, place to it. Thanks, eight. Coach. And, uh, Thanks, guys. Thanks a lot, Brad. Appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely, guys. All right, take care. And thanks again for you, the listener, for checking out New England Lacrosse Journal's Chasing the Gold podcast. For Jack Piatelli, I'm Kyle Devitt. See you next week.